the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Thank you for joining us tonight. In tonight's Advocate, we're going to be talking about uh, our usual COVID. I think that is the key ingredient to our lives right about now. And joining us again is Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. Kevin, how are you doing today? Very well, Nick. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate having you giving us an up-to-date. Now, we're pre-recording this, and uh, you're out at the Cuyahoga County Fairgrounds now. Is that right? That is correct. Today is uh, one of our vaccine clinic days, so we are out here. We started at 10 a.m. today, and we will be out here until 6 p.m. vaccinating people who are in the Phase 1A group. Now, uh, as we're doing the 1A group, uh, I understand we're, we're into the 1B group as far as timing goes. How, how is that working out? How long will, will we still be in the 1A group before we start the 1Bs? Well, um, the governor, you know, I, I think was very clear in recognizing that um, some of the populations for the 1A group could be significant in size, and it was going to take some time to get through that. So um, he created an auxiliary bank of providers uh, here in Cuyahoga County. I think we were, we're all familiar with this by now since it's been a handful of days since that began. But these providers are what we call the 1B provider list, and they are um, largely uh, health health systems, meaning hospital systems, federally qualified health centers, and some local pharmacies. And they are serving the 1B population now while we continue as the Board of Health to, uh, to serve the 1A population. And then when we are finished with the 1A population, we will join in along with that list of providers, and be another place that people on the 1B, uh, who fall in the 1B category, can get their vaccine as well. So we are still, I would say, a handful of weeks away from completing 1A, and then at that point we will transition to 1B. Well, that sounds orderly. Uh, it sounds like a lot more clear than we've been hearing in other situations. Uh, at the Cuyahoga County Fairgrounds, uh, tell me, you're still seeing the 1A. These are including uh, people who are... Um, Employed by healthcare agencies and their providers, or are they first responders, or who all is coming through in 1A yet? Uh, both of the things that you mentioned, both of those categories are correct, Nick. And, and primarily, it's people who provide direct patient care to people who may have COVID or who are confirmed with COVID. So, it, you know, it's really trying to get that what we call in past episodes, I know we've called it the infrastructure, right? We're trying to make sure that the people who take care of the people who could be sick are vaccinated so that they are protected and they're able to go to work every day. Because as you know, we in the past have talked about the need for our EMS personnel, our firefighters, our hospital workers. They have to be able to go to work. So I I think it was very logical to begin with them uh, to make sure that we got them vaccinated first. Now, as they're getting vaccinated, uh, are you seeing people just from Cuyahoga County or what kind of credentials do they need to provide? Are they doing it by appointment or, or what's happening out there? 
Yeah, on our website at ccbh.net, we have a page where you can go and sign up to be notified. Uh, it's really a notification list that will let you know when slots are available. <clears throat> so if you are a 1A worker and you have not signed up to be vaccinated yet, you can do that through our website. Um, also, as, as a 1B worker, you're welcome to sign up to, to have a vaccine from us at the point that we get there. But our recommendation now would be that we believe that people may get served faster, particularly the senior population. We feel they will get served faster by going to this auxiliary provider list. And when we say auxiliary provider, there's a list that came out last week that had about 90 locations here in Cuyahoga County. Is that the list you're talking about? That is correct. And if you go to, if you go to our website, Nick, uh, we have taken the state's list, and the state did a very nice job. They organized the list by county um, at coronavirus.ohio.gov. You can see the list um, by – you can see the statewide list as separated by county. What we've done at, at our uh, website at ccbh.net is we've taken our Cuyahoga County list, and we've broken it down by city. So we thought it was a little bit easier, particularly for the senior population, to navigate that list, knowing what cities they could go to, rather than having to search through a number of Giant Eagle providers or, you know, hospital systems providers. And, and so we just thought it provided a little more clarity. Oh, that's good. I'm on your website now, and uh, I can see that it is broken down by city. Ironically, the 1Bs begin with people 80 and over, and uh, most of these locations require or encourage you to... Uh, basically go online and register. Uh, I'm not sure how many 80-year-old people can do that. Uh, how do they register? Well, um, if they can't do the computer. Sure, sure. We've been working with the Western Reserve Agency on Aging. Uh, we've been working with um, the Department of Adult and Senior Services. Uh, we're working with the library systems, local senior centers. We actually we did a presentation yesterday for the Ohio Senior Center Association trying to get them acquainted with, um, you know, some of the mechanics of getting through uh, the registration process. I think what we're going to find is in, in coming days, I don't know if it will be days or weeks, but there will be some sort of system here at the county where seniors will be able to call a phone number and then someone will assist them and walk them through the registration process on the phone. That is still forthcoming. As I say, I don't know what date – uh, that will actually become reality, but that is in the works. Our, uh, to your knowledge, uh, at those auxiliary sites for the 80-year-olds, uh, how is that going? Are a lot of people showing up? Are we getting a lot of response? Are a lot of people in that age group declining the opportunity? Um, I can tell you anecdotally, I think that group, by and large, would be receptive based on the number of phone calls and inquiries that we've gotten over the last you know, several weeks wondering about the availability of vaccine. But as far as answering your question directly, I don't know because those aren't locations that we are visiting. Um, we're, we're still concentrating on our individual 1A efforts. So I'm not exactly sure how that the mechanics of everything is working out at the 1B phase. But the thing that to caution people on is in this first week here of 1B, um, there, was a, there was an awareness that these 1B providers would not have uh, what we would call maybe an endless supply of vaccine, right? They were going to be very small doses based on availability because right now the vaccine supply is uh, not as robust as we'd like it to be. So I think a lot of this 1B, Nick, was about setting a precedent for locations and setting up, again, infrastructure so that when the, when the availability of vaccine becomes greater, people will have established places to go. They'll know where to go in their neighborhood. Uh, these facilities will have a procedure down. So I think this is a lot about table setting as much as it is getting ready, anticipating that time when the vaccine supply becomes more abundant.
With uh, the rollout of the 1Bs now, the 80-year-olds, are you hearing anything anecdotally as far as whether they're all crowded up at these locations or whether it's easy to get an appointment or just how is that going so far? Well, I think with with this first week of doses being limited, I would imagine it's a small group of people who are actually receiving the vaccination. But what we understand is um, at some locations they're you know, they're very cognizant of social distancing, spreading people out. Um, I don't know if some of these locations would actually be drive-through or walk-up. So, um, you know, given that we are not part of that process yet in whole, um, I can't speak to that directly. But I do know that they're they're making accommodations, um, you know, as much as they can to be, to be cognizant of, of the, uh, you know, the distance that we keep and making sure we're not on top of each other. And I think that what this illustrates, though, in the end is that's why the appointments are so critical. Um, because we can space people out, we can be a little bit more predictable about who's coming, plus we can care for the vaccine better. Because as we know, the vaccine is very perishable, so we want to be very deliberate in making sure that we are um, consistently planning for only the number of people we're, you know, we want to vaccinate that day, um, rather than you know thawing too much vaccine at once and not being able to use it. Uh, we've been very uh, consistent in that process here at the Board of Health, and we've got a very deliberate process mapped out, and, and we're very good at that. But I think by making the uh, by making the appointments, going back to that, I think it avoids people waiting in long lines because what we don't want is we don't want senior populations having to endure long waits or you know unnecessarily long waits. So again, this structure and this this template that's being set up, I think, will really be fruitful in the end. Well, when someone comes up for an inoculation, this, I'm assuming most of these people are getting their first shot. Uh, are they also scheduled for a second shot before they leave the site? They'll be notified again uh, at the time that their second their second dose uh, that they're ready to receive the second dose. So we'll remind people for the Pfizer vaccine, um, the minimum amount of time in between doses is 21 days, and then for the Moderna vaccine, the minimum is 28 days. And that does not mean I want to be clear here that it doesn't mean on day 28 or 29 or day 21 or 22 that you have to get that second dose. It just means that your body is able to accept it. And uh, and 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 I think. Anecdotally, I don't have the numbers in front of me, Nick, I'm sorry, but I think it's approximately 50% protection that you get with that first dose of vaccine, and then you get the remaining 40-some percent um, through the second dose. And then after that, it's about two weeks. Yes. Okay, so so what happens is that... is there an uh, extended outlie period as to you, you have at least the 21 days or the month? How far can you wait before you have to come back for your second month, before you have to go through the whole thing again? That I don't know. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not certain about that. I, I, don't know, uh, I don't know what the answer is to that. But for the short term, if you'd wait like one or two months, uh, is that within the realm of okay? I think so. I, I think that would be acceptable. Um, beyond, you know, anything beyond, I'll just say, anything beyond 30 days or so, I really, I don't have a feel for, for how long that the, the, the vaccine remains uh, efficacious in your system. Gotcha. Anyway, we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, telling us about how the vaccination program is going today. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. 
We're talking to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health about the vaccination program going on here in Cuyahoga County. Uh, Kevin, as always, it's great to hear your authoritative information as to what's going on with COVID. Thank you. Well, sure, Nick, and thank you, as always, for having us. We appreciate the opportunity to spread the message to, to people who are interested. Well, thanks for fielding my questions, because uh, sometimes there's no answers, and I appreciate when you can let us know that anecdotally. It's almost as good, I think, as a start opposed to not hearing anything about a topic. But going back to the vaccines themselves, um, we, we know that, not to get over technical, but the Moderna and the Pfizer come in frozen. Uh, they are... Uh, messenger RNA type theory vaccines opposed to Johnson and Johnson, which we'll be hearing more about in the upcoming weeks and may also be out there as an option to people. Uh, first off, with two and maybe three vaccines, do people have a choice in what vaccine they take or are they do they get in line and get what's given? I, it's really the latter. Uh, you know, it's much like us. We take whatever vaccine the state you know provides us with. And then we work with that accordingly. Um, up to this point, we've been working exclusively with Moderna, uh, just based on our refrigeration capabilities at the Board of Health. But we also know, uh, as I'm sure people know, that Metro Health has been a, a COVID testing partner of ours through the entire epidemic. And so should we receive a shipment of Pfizer, we may reach into Metro Health's storage capacity just to help us store that effectively until we have a pod. So it really is at the discretion of the state as to whatever vaccine they provide for us. When it comes into the hands of the Board of Health for vaccinations, uh, does it matter uh, the type of patient or the type of history or the preferences as to which of the two vaccines they get, the Moderna or the Pfizer, or you guys treated that it's six of one, half dozen of the other? Absolutely. Again, that's the latter. Yeah, we, 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 we have not had any indication that one is better suited for the other. Um, none of our physicians or our medical director have indicated that to us. So, But we want to make very clear to people that whatever you get as the first dose is what you want to get as your second dose. It is not at all recommended that you mix, meaning that your first dose would be Pfizer, your second dose would be Moderna. Now, to prevent that from happening, when you become vaccinated with that first dose, your provider, whoever gives it to you, is going to give you a card that will document the date that you got your vaccine, the type of vaccine that you got, and then you can um, make sure that uh, when you're receiving your second dose that it all lines up correctly. And theoretically, when you get contacted to get your second dose, the provider should know which dose that you got. You just want to make sure that you have your card with you for to like a double check on that system. When, when you get a shot, uh, you get your inoculation of the first dose, of the vaccine and you have to go back for a second dose. We know you have to really make sure you get the second dose of the same vaccine. But what about the location? Can you go to a different place to get it or should you go back to the same provider who gave you that first shot? Um, you know, I don't know if potentially that may change as more providers become available. But right now, I think the practice is to try to bring people as closely back to the location where they first received the vaccine. And I think, you know, in large part, if people got it from us as the Board of Health, uh, chances are that they would be coming back to the Cuyahoga County Fairgrounds since that is one of our hub locations. Um, and, and I do want to say this, Nick, if you don't mind while we're on the subject, is no, we are very, we're very aware of the fact that, you know, we want to be more equitable in providing vaccine in terms of location, access, 
public transportation, all those things make a difference. At this point, the vaccine supply is not steady enough for us to widen our network. But as we get a steadier supply of vaccine, you will see us and other providers as well widen the network to provide more accessibility to people all across the county. Speaking of accessibility, uh, I've heard questions about uh, in, at some locations there's a possibility that uh, you've thought out too much vaccine and you'll have a short time period to get injections. And there, there are some hints that there may be some, uh, some appointment lists for people who can get there like within 30 minutes of being called. Is there anything like that that you've seen with the county or anywhere else? No, we have not taken that tact. Um, as I say, I think through what we mentioned a few minutes ago is through the scheduling process, through making sure the appointments are, are systemic in terms of every so many minutes and making sure that, you know, we have a very realistic uh, approximation of the number of people we can bring through a line along with the amount of vaccine we have. We have not had to do that. We've been almost spot on with the number of vaccines that we've been thawing and distributing because we've been able to get that ratio so close through the scheduling process. So, but, so you yeah, haven't I, had to I destroy any vaccine? No, we have not at all. We've been able to use every dose that we've been provided to date. The uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine is, is a different theory. It only requires one, one shot, and uh, they're talking about that coming online shortly. Uh, if, if that happens, will that be incorporated into your system as well? Well, I mean, that would be at the discretion of the state, right? So if, if the federal government and the state government feel that that's the way to go, then we will certainly, you know, align with that protocol. Um, I, think, uh, I think the one thing we want to be thinking about at this point is, and again, not being a doctor or a nurse, just saying this off the top of my head, is that we want to make sure that we're comparing efficacy also. Because we want to, you know, if we can achieve 94 to 95% efficacy through a two-dose, uh, we know with the Pfizer and the Moderna, we want to make sure that that one dose is at least in the ballpark, right? Um, now, having said that, you know, we go through years with flu vaccine where sometimes the flu vaccine could only be 50 or 60% effective, right? Because we're trying to predict in the future as to what those flu strains might be. And that's a little bit of a difficult thing to do. So the efficacy piece, I think, is, is an important part of how receptive different locations will be to picking up this vaccine in light of the very high success rate that we've seen with Moderna and Pfizer so far. When, when people are registered for a, an inoculation and they're contacted, uh, are they going to be able to ask what vaccine it is so they can have some control over whether they're going to take the, the one-shot Johnson or the Moderna or Pfizer? Pfizer? Well, that'll all depend, first of all, on if the state wants to accept the Johnson & Johnson into the distribution system, and then um, also just to make sure that, uh, you know, we're not mixing doses, as we said before. So that's something that I don't really think we can say with any sort of authority at this point. We need to let that roll out at the federal and the state level and see where that lies. And we'll have to talk about that later next time you come on. Uh, is, yes. is there another question? Is there a uniform database that's being kept? Uh, with all these names of, of people and who's getting what? Yes. Um, the state has a, what they call a vaccine registry. So if you come to one of our clinics, what you'll do is you'll, especially here at the fairgrounds, you'll drive into the garage, you'll stop at a bay or a table, and one person will be the vaccinator, which could be a, a member of an EMS personnel, uh, and then there will be somebody that's sitting at the table at the computer actually entering your information, verifying who you are, making sure that your dosage is recorded, and making sure it's stored in that registry. So that is a, a fundamental piece of every single vaccine that we administer. 
Do we have people uh, crossing counties to get vaccine? I would think so, just because, you know, it, it, it depends on if you're getting your vaccine because of where you live, right? So if say that you're somebody who's self-employed, right, and you decide that you need the vaccine, so you're probably going to go where the county in which you live. If, you, if you're getting it through your employer, it could depend on where, where your assignment is, where your employer is located. So we could, we could very realistically be seeing some of that. So if you're in a situation where Cuyahoga County is running really behind and someone would want to go to another county, might they be able to get their shot there if they have no connection to that county just to drive down there like they're doing down in Florida? Probably not, you know, because what we want is what we ask for as part of this 1A verification phase is we want to we want to verify two things. We want to verify that you are a county resident or that you're getting your vaccine through your employer who is qualified here in the county as a 1A provider. So there is a verification process that we go through both when you sign up on the notification list, you have to do a little verification. And then um, before your appointment is confirmed, you have to do some verification. So there are two steps in which we try to just make sure that everybody is, is you know, going along with the, the established guidelines. Oh, very good. Well, in, in the last minute here, a question about how are we doing with new cases? Uh, it, it seems like the cases might be stabilizing or, or lessening. How's that looking from your end? No, we're still seeing, unfortunately, we're still seeing the case activity be very active, um, and, and we're seeing it actually rise a little bit. Um, so I, I think we would really caution people on a couple things. If you, if you think that you're symptomatic, please go get tested. Um, when you get tested, please stay at home and quarantine until you get your results. And remember that the vaccine is not an antibiotic, right? So you cannot get the vaccine if you're sick with symptoms. Uh, it is not curative, right? It's meant to be preventive in nature. So, and unfortunately, um, this week, you know, we're, we've seen an increase of about 3,500 cases, and we uh, have seen an increase in over 150 fatalities. So, unfortunately, Nick, the, the numbers still are, are not quite promising at this point. Oh, my. Well, it's still with us, and as long as we still have the COVID, the COVID problem, uh, we'll, we'll be talking to you, Kevin. Thank you so much for uh, helping us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. Thank you. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking to Dr. Daniel Megas, a recurring guest, who's going to talk to us about the uh, coronavirus and the vaccines that are out there. Dr. Megas, again, as always, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your, your wisdom and knowledge. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to always talk to you. Oh, it's good, because I know when we talk, we talk earlier prior to these interviews, and I know you go out and you do some research and find out what's going on, and this week we want to talk about the vaccinations that are coming up and the vaccines that are available. Uh, as as we're looking at it now, I'm aware of there being two primary vaccines, one called uh, one manufactured by Moderna and the other done and manufactured by Pfizer. Uh, tell us a little bit about these vaccines and is there any one that is more advantageous than the other? 
Well, they're pretty comparable right now. Both require two doses. Um, the Pfizer has to be frozen to 94 degrees minus Fahrenheit, and uh, the Moderna only four degrees below, four degrees positive, which is uh, above zero but still freezing. So there are some logistic issues in terms of storage and transportation. Um, the Pfizer has to be given in two doses, 21 days apart, but it's very effective. We're talking about uh, 95% efficacy in um, uh, those people that were tested uh, 16 years and, 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 and over, including the elderly. Um, after the first dose, um, by two weeks after the first dose, about 50% people are already effective, um, effectively um, uh, protected, but it requires a second dose. And by 14 days after the second dose, you've got um, 95% uh, effectiveness. So um, it works very, very well. And it's also very effective against that new um, muted strain, the N1501Y, the one that has increased transmissibility and can infect people more readily. So it's very, very effective. Um, it uh, has um, very uh, few side effects, the first dose. Uh, maybe some pain in the arm. The second dose that you get 21 days later in the Pfizer, it's um, about half of the people do get muscle aches and pains, fever, chills, achiness, and just plain fatigue. And it's uh, a fair amount of them need to take a day or two off work. So you've got to be prepared for that. Now, the Moderna on the same time, very, very similar. It has to be given 28 days apart and is... Um, it's got emergency authorization by the FDA for people 18 years and older. Works also very well, about 94% 94 effective in both the younger and the older, over 65 age group. Um, again, it's the second dose that tends to cause more problems, fever, chills, fatigue, headache, muscle aches and pains. And uh, Moderna has... has um, has data that their antibody response is good for at least 12 months, which is very good news because uh, at least for a year you're in good shape. And um, if the virus dies out and doesn't come back, uh, one set of uh, vaccinations, the two doses, may be adequate forever. Um, so does the back, Pfizer have the same 12 months? Let me ask you about the Pfizer. Know. You mentioned Moderna's 12 months. What about Pfizer? Any studies on that? How long? I haven't seen their data yet. I haven't seen their data yet. I don't think it's out yet. Okay. Now the uh, now there's a third vaccine that is going to be asked, that's going to be requiring or requesting uh, FDA approval very soon uh, by Johnson and Johnson. Uh, it's an adenovirus. Uh, the first two uh, it's, it's an adenovirus vector. Uh, is the platform that they use for manufacturing and uh, uh, administration. The uh, the first two are messenger RNA, but it's important to realize that uh, this does not change the messenger RNA in your body, does not affect your genetic makeup or your DNA at all. Now, this adenovector uh, that, that's injected in people to, um, to provide uh, immunity um, to COVID-19 is, is very, very safe because the adenovirus does not replicate anywhere in the body. All it does is carry a um, part of the COVID um, gen a genetic code into the cell so it can produce antibodies against it. And it's very, very effective. One dose 
um, after day 29 seems to be 96 to 99% effective. In the older people, 96% have antibody response and a good antibody response at 99% of the um, people under age 65. And by day 57, that's 100%. Now, they have a small group in that phase one study that's gotten the second dose, and we don't have that data yet. This does not need freezing. It can be stored safely in uh, regular refrigerization, and um, uh, it looks like it may be very effective uh, even after day 57, at least to day 71. The antibody's stable to say day 71 after one dose. Now, if it turns out after the phase three studies are over that one dose is adequate, is as good as two, and it stays remains this effective, um, and it's this easy to transport and to store, this Johnson & Johnson vaccine really could be a game changer. It, um, the, the federal government has uh, reserved 100 million doses already for it, and they have an option to pick up another 200 million doses. There's enough there to vaccinate almost the entire U.S. population. Um, and this would be much easier to deal with. Uh, than the other two that need to be frozen, especially the Pfizer needs to be frozen at minus 94 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, which is uh, very, very cold, requires very special industrial freezers. Do we have an idea of how long it would be between inoculations, or like you mentioned, Moderna, that, that immunization would last for about 12 months? To Johnson & Johnson, do they have any predictions as to how long that would no. last? No, the studies haven't gone far enough. No. They're a little behind the uh, the other two in getting things going. They're starting the phase three studies now. So it's probably going to be several months, three, four, five months before we actually know how how good this is. They're trying, based on the earlier studies, they're trying to get emergency authorization so they can go ahead and manufacture this um, And uh, now that the government is willing to commit. But... Um, we got to wait until at least uh, at least another two or three weeks before that's possible. So look, this is a waiting game in this regard. Now they're all very very safe. The uh, the side effects of this Johnson and Johnson seem to be a little more frequent. Sixty to eighty percent of people do get some kind of uh, side effect, mostly pain in the arm, but headaches, muscle aches and pains, nausea occur more frequently in this one after one dose than the previous two that I've spoken around. The severe reactions, anaphylaxis, are very rare. Um, they've uh, occur uh, like 11 per million, as opposed to uh, a flu, which is, is less common. The flu, you have an anaphylaxis, severe allergy reaction, maybe one, one per million. Well, in this uh, particular case, we're seeing 11 per million. Um, and uh, But it's still very rare. And um, it's contraindicated for those people who do have um, severe anaphylactic allergies to anything that has PEG, polyethylene glycol, uh, or polysorbate, which are preservatives and fillers in the, um, in the vaccines. And sometimes in, in some oral medications. So if you have a severe allergy to any of those medications uh, and vaccines that have those ingredients, and it's contraindicated that you take this, 
Um, anybody who has severe allergies and anaphylaxis to any other uh, injection or any other medication, they have to be given um, these vaccines under very special controlled conditions where if a severe reaction does occur, uh, they can be treated right away. So special special uh, precautions have to be taken. And um, there have been, 20, as of December 23rd, there were 21 cases of anaphylaxis um, reported from Pfizer or Moderna together. Since then, um, there were eight more issues, um, additions. So we're talking about 10, 11 cases per million doses given. Very, very rare. Um, but it is more common than you see in the influenza situation. Well, as we're looking and waiting for the vaccinations to continue and to, uh, even though we're not going to get immediate herd immunity, those who do receive the vaccinations are going to be protected from getting the virus and having the the devastating uh, results of of having to go through a course of illness with COVID-19. So that's going to be something. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Magus who has been our expert joining us here on The Advocate, uh, researching and telling us about the latest thing with vaccines and what's going on with COVID. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words with Dr. Magus. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Magus concerning COVID, of course, but we're talking specifically about the COVID vaccination program and uh, the different choices you have. Uh, So, Dr. Magus, thank you, as always, for joining us by uh, talking about the options that are out there. We have uh, the Pfizer, we have Moderna, and maybe coming up online in the next month or so, Johnson and Johnson, with the different vaccine options and with the uh, requirement for two of those vaccines to require a second shot, how important is it for the individual who gets their first vaccination with one of those three that they know what they're going to be doing in the next month or so? Well, well, the Pfizer and the Moderna both uh, are the ones that are being given out right now, administered, and both of them require a second dose. So it's important to get it pretty close to that time. The Pfizer 21 days and the Moderna 28 days later. Um, if you get it later uh, and delay it too much, you may get a drop in the antibody uh, uh, level and uh, you may be more susceptible to getting uh, the illness. Even after the second dose, it's not 100%. Remember, 94 and 95% effective. So um, you uh, five out of 100 people, 10 out of 200 will still get the illness, even though they've been vaccinated. Now, we think it's a milder case, but um, there's very little data showing for sure what to expect. Um, after um, uh, getting the dose, you still have to be careful, and you still have to do the mitigating uh, procedures that we've been recommended in the past that we know work. Uh, Social distancing, avoiding large groups of people, wearing your mask um, whenever you're out in public, 
And uh, all those things do make a big difference. And you're still going to have to do that until the virus goes away. How much, how many people that need to be vaccinated, 65, 70, 75%, somewhere in that range will be required for this to get the virus under control, maybe as high as even 80%. We don't know for sure. It's a little bit of a guess at this time based on other uh, um, pandemic outbreaks. But um, you still have to be careful. And uh, good well, idea. Let me ask as this. Close to that 21 and 28-day uh, window as possible. Go ahead. Well, let me ask this. If you do get vaccinated with any one of the vaccines, we're talking about nearly 100% efficacy. Uh, even though we wear masks and stuff, can we feel comfortable about going to a movie, going to a theater? Uh, going to a restaurant indoors and eating. Uh, we we should be protected. That's what it sort of tells us. Do you agree? Do you think we are protected enough to go and feel comfortable returning to at least those two amenities? Well, you are far more protected than you were before, before getting the vaccination. 100% can't, nobody can ever say that, but it's, it's close to 100%. Um, the danger, of course, is if you're close to somebody, and they're talking to you, and they have no mask, and you have no mask. So if you have a mask, you are protecting yourself to some extent. And again, you're, if you wear the mask, you're, you're, you're protecting the person you're talking to more than yourself. So um, if you're in a well-ventilated theater or well-ventilated uh, restaurant, especially if you're outdoors, um, you're pretty darn safe, um, it, it, but not 100%. But, but well, I think we're all close. looking at. I think we're all looking at having a little more freedom here, and it's been so long. But you know what's happening? We're still seeing uh, five, six thousand, sometimes more deaths uh, or new cases being diagnosed in Ohio each day. Yes. Uh, the deaths are still uh, under a hundred a day, but we're having sixty, seventy deaths a day related to COVID. And from mm-hmm. what I've been finding out anecdotally, is that more people that I talk to know people who are closer to them who are coming up positive with COVID. And some of them go to the hospital, some of them don't. Uh, and those, we, I just heard of a case today where a person early 60s is in the hospital and uh, has been in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And the x-rays are showing what appears to be permanent lung damage because of this. What what kind of treatments are out there for those people who still come up with a, a more complicated, more devastating type of, of COVID-19? Well, unfortunately, we still don't have one overriding treatment that's effective in everybody in all cases. Uh, and there's definitely people who are sick enough who are getting um, inflammation of their lungs, and we're finding out that there's permanent changes in those lungs. Um, uh, that that probably will not improve and get better. Um, for those people who are in the hospital, the convalescent plasma does seem to work to some extent, but it has to be given in within 72 hours of the onset of the illness. So you kind of have to know that this person is going to be sicker than usual, and um, the medical profession is constantly trying to do serologic tests, blood tests, to say which which um, blood test can indicate that this person is going to go downhill, is going to get sicker than the average person. So you can use a convalescent plasma. That's plasma. That's well, would age, would age be a factor to require convalescent plasma? 
the older you are, the more likely you are to be in the hospital. And once you're in the hospital, you're more likely to be sicker than average, and you're more likely to need ICU and a respirator. So age has um, a direct and indirect influence on all that. Uh, but it's a little tricky trying to figure out who should get it fast enough. If you are in a respirator and you are getting high-dose oxygen, then the steroids like decadron, dexamethasone is very effective. The tocilizumab, the interleukin-6 uh, inhibitor, which is a monoclonal antibody to stop the uh, cytokine storm, seems to have some effect in other people, and other people doesn't seem to work at all. So it, the, the jury's really out on that. Remdesivir, the antiviral medication, uh, is, does work. It works best if you give it with a monoclonal antibody. The baricitinab, baricitinab with the remdesivir does work better than the remdesivir by itself. And the anti-SARS neutralizing antibody cocktail, which is uh, manufactured by a pharmaceutical company, it's a combination of two medications, Indevimab and Cosarivimab. Cosarivimab and Indevimab. Those are the two medications that are given and seem to work in outpatients who uh, to prevent them from getting sick enough to go in the hospital. Problem is, is you can't give it to everybody. It has to be given intravenous. Uh, it's, uh, it's in limited supply available. And um, at the same token, it would be, it's difficult to give if you have to give it intravenous. So you've got to kind of pick and choose which patients need it the most. And it's very hard to do when uh, they're, before they're sick. I have a question. If you end up going to the hospital, you're likely to go into the hospital via an emergency room. And if you get into the emergency room, you, you rattled off a whole lot of different medications and treatment forms. Are, are these treatments that are available, are they well-known to all the doctors out there? So it, it doesn't matter what hospital you go a to, lot this of is doctors, common knowledge. A lot of doctors are given their own cocktail with, with, with medications that potentially can help and are unproven. Uh, until you get your test back, uh, the symptoms are very similar to influenza. So some people are given treating influenza with uh, the anti-influenza medication right off the bat until they know for sure this is not influenza. Uh, so, um, there are things out there that people are using, but they, are, are they very effective against COVID-19? Probably not. Um, what, what about but, getting but, tested for COVID? Uh, is there, but the PCR test is the gold standard versus yeah. a quick test? Yeah. Uh, how long does it take to get a response from a PCR test? And you got a lab, can you get one without a prescription? If 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 the uh, if you if you get a prescription and if you have symptoms and you have a lab that's not overloaded 24 hours, but it's only 90 percent effective sensitive. The best test out there is only about 90 94 percent effective uh, and, and and sensitive. So it, it will miss five to 10 percent of the uh, the real cases out there. The best PCR test will do that. Um, the ones that check saliva, uh, that they come back right away, are even less sensitive. They, they, they miss a lot more. The ones that work the best are the ones that um, you collect sputum from deep inside the lung, but that's when you suction people who are very, very ill on a respirator. Or if you're testing for three 
um, genetic genomes. Those that check for three genetic genomes versus one tend to be a little more effective, maybe 94, 94. Well, we're, we're going we're to check with we're going to check with you again. We're talking to Dr. Dan Megas, who's helping us understand what the current status is of COVID nineteen. Dr. Megas, thank you so much for your help today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Take care, Nick. Thank you so much, Dan. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a good, healthy, and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh milk.